Mark chapter 15, verse 16. The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews! They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. After they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him and they led him out to crucify him. And they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Lord, I just want to second uh, Les's prayer this morning, a prayer for humility, a prayer that we might have this mind in ourselves, that as Jesus came to this world and bore the cross, we might have that, that same mentality. And Father, I ask this morning simply that You would speak Your words, not mine, but Yours, and may we hear from Your Spirit. And may each of, us, each of our hearts be dealt with and convicted as you see fit and as you desire. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The closer we get to Christmas, really every year, but here we are in, in the month of December, the more I think about the profound prophetic circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus. How absolutely amazing His whole first coming truly was. Mind-boggling what was shared hundreds of years, if not thousands of years before His birth that were fulfilled perfectly in and through and by His birth. Isaiah 9.6, Isaiah prophesied, For unto us a child will be born, and unto us a son will be given, and the government will rest on His shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, and Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Prophet Micah, chapter 5, verse 2 said, As for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And it's just amazing, and there are many others I won't go into this morning, but in Bethlehem, Mary bore a son unlike any other child ever born into this world. Fully human and fully God. Born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. I marvel at the whole story from the angels singing in the heavens or declaring and proclaiming in the heavens to to the shepherds who heard that message on the night of His birth. I'm absolutely amazed from the manger to the magi, all that took place, all that happened, from the star of Bethlehem to the Son of God. The story of Christ's birth is an amazing story. But this December, as we've been staying on track in our Mark study, the closer we get to Christmas, I have realized the closer we get to the crucifixion of the Son of God. And I actually, looking out ahead and and thinking about this study back uh, at the end of the summertime, and laying it out, realized if we just hit a chapter a week, we were going to land at the crucifixion right around the time of Christmas. The time of celebrating the birth, thinking about that that marvelous, wonderful story. And yet it's appropriate, I think. Because the cross gives the manger its meaning. 
Without the cross, the manger is just a manger. Without the cross, the birth is just a sweet story. Without the cross, it's nostalgic, safe, charming. It's the nativity scene on the mantle at home, and nothing more. It is the cross that pours the meaning into Christmas, into the birth of Jesus. And maybe that's something you've thought about before, but it it impacted me big time this week, thinking about the fact that it is that baby's death, it is that baby's piercing, having grown to a man, walked among us, healed the many, fed the many, loved the many, that He would be crucified, pierced, hung up before all mankind. That's what makes this season so profound. Mark 15.39, toward the end of the chapter tells us when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. The same Son born in the manger, now born by the cross. Nailed to the cross. Jesus said in John 12.32, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to Myself. But He was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which He was to die. And so this year, my prayer for all of us, for you and myself as well, is the closer we get to Christmas, the closer we will get to the cross. That even as we celebrate this Christmas season, we will celebrate it in terms of the crucifixion. Now, the only one of His followers who was present at His birth would be Mary, as far as we know. The Bible tells us there were a number present at His death. Luke 23.49 says all His acquaintances and the women who accompanied Him from Galilee were standing at a distance seeing these things. Specifically, the Bible names Jesus' mother as being there along with Mary Magdalene, along with Mary the mother of James and Joseph, Salome the mother of James and John, Mark 15.40 will tell us that. John himself, the disciple, the apostle, was there, John 19.26, as Jesus looked down and said to him, John, behold your mother, woman, behold your son, and gives care and entrusts his mother to John. So we know John was there. But there's another guy who was there at the crucifixion, inadvertently, didn't intend to be, didn't really come to Jerusalem to be part of this scene. A man whose encounter with the cross, I believe, would change his life forever. And that is Simon of Cyrene. Simon of Cyrene. He got closer to the cross than anybody else would because Simon helped carry it. Simon would bear that cross on his shoulders. Now, before we get to his part in the story, we need to understand why. What led up to the moment when he was pulled out of the crowd and entrusted with the carrying of the cross of Jesus? So if you look in verse 16 again, I want you to note something here that John explains explicitly. It's it's amazing how specific he is. He says in verse 16, the soldiers took him away into the place, the, the palace that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. The praetorium was a fortress. It was a fortress of the Roman guard built by Herod right up against the northwest corner of the temple complex there in Jerusalem. And the praetorium was destroyed almost completely in A.D. 70. 
when Rome destroyed Jerusalem. A few arches were left, uh, some courtyard paving stones were left, but over the centuries it got covered over with dust and debris and dirt and, and built up. In the 1900s, the Sisters of Zion built a convent there, but as archaeologists began to dig down underneath this convent and dig deeper into the earth, they rediscovered these arches. They rediscovered stone pavement. And what they found there was intriguing. For there on the stone pavement that dates all the way back to the first century time of Jesus, there are markings you can still see which reveal a brutal game that was played by the Roman soldiers. And in verses 17 through 19, Mark describes accurately and graphically this specific game. They dressed him in purple. After twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews! I used to read that and think, what a horrible, brutal thing to do. Why did they do this? What would lead them to, to such behavior? Why would they call him king of the Jews? Why would they twist the crown of thorns and shove it onto his brow? Why the purple robe? Why the beatings? Why all of this? They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. Were the Roman guards really that brutal? And part of the answer is yes, they were. But there's more to it than just these guards in this particular instance thinking they'd have a little fun with this prisoner. They were playing a game. They were playing a game, and the etchings on the floor there in what is left of the praetorium reveal that to us. It was called the game of the king. The game of the king. They would take sheep, sheep's knuckles for dice, and they'd roll them on the etched stones. Now, when this game first began, it began usually with a young recruit of Rome, a young Roman soldier that the older soldiers would mess with and would play with and make fun of, and it was kind of like a harsh initiation that sometimes even ended in the death of the young recruit. And they would do that to put the fear of of the authority into the other young recruits. Well, after a while, uh, because it was not good for morale, (laughs) you know, the the higher-ups in Rome said, no more playing with the recruits, but you can do this with condemned criminals. And that's what they did. They would take the condemned criminal, they'd give him a robe, they'd give him a makeshift crown, a scepter, and they would pay homage to him, calling him the king. It was the game of the king. And in the game, they vicariously gambled his possessions, even if the man had nothing. They would play as though he did. They would gamble off his wife or wives. They would gamble off his servants. They would gamble off his land holdings. In many ways, like we would play Monopoly, except with blood. And as they gambled, they would pay homage to him depending on where the dice landed on the markings or they would beat him depending on where those sheep's knuckles landed. They played a game. And finally, the winner gained the rights to kill him. Mark records this game for us. Again, this is not just a strange occurrence. It was recording exactly what they did as these soldiers bowed down in mock worship, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And it was all a game to them. Little did they understand as they bowed down and worshipped and hailed Him as the King of the Jews, what they were saying. Philippians chapter 2. 
verses 10 and 11 says that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They're toying with Jesus, but what they were toying with was the truth. He is, He was, He shall ever be the King of the Jews, the King of kings, the one who we will fall down and worship. All people will. You know that. Whether you want to or not, there is a day coming when every knee will bow before Jesus. Some in abject fear, others in deep, humble worship. But that day is not far off, my friends. Before the game began, I want you to think about what Jesus had already endured. As brutal as this game was, He had already endured the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating blood as it were. His capillaries expanding in great stress, bursting under the skin, and blood coming out of the pores. Hematidrosis is the medical term for it. And it is so harsh on the body to get to that state of despair that typically it leads to death right then. He should have died in the garden. He didn't, but he would have been completely exhausted. From the garden, he was led out by the betrayal of Judas. He watched the flight of the disciples left all by himself as the guards carried him off. He would, he would endure the denials of Peter who promised to stand with him. We talked about Wednesday. He went through the rest of the night six different trials, mock trials, completely unjust as they dragged Jesus back and forth from the previous high priest Annas to his son, the new high priest Caiaphas' home, from there to the Sanhedrin, from the Sanhedrin over to Pilate. Pilate would send him to Herod. Herod would have his phone with him and send him back to Pilate. Six trials throughout the night. Throughout these trials, there was the excruciating beating, the slapping, the making fun, and then under Pilate's authority came the flogging. The flogging not only broke the flesh, but as some Roman witnesses wrote, it left muscles and viscera shredded in long ribbons hanging off the back. And this is the state Jesus was in. Isaiah tells us, Isaiah 53, 5, but He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging, we are healed. And again, the prophetic significance of what that man spoke 700 years before it happened is astounding. After all that happened, he comes into the praetorium and they begin to play this brutal game with him. Beating him more, slugging him more, the crown of thorns down upon his head, the robe on that shredded back. And when they were done with the game, they would peel off the robe and put his clothes back on him and lead him out for the crucifixion. That leads us to an interesting question. Did Jesus carry the cross? Did He actually carry the cross or was it carried for Him? We're told in verse 21, they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear His cross. Matthew and Mark and Luke agree. Simon carried the cross of Jesus. And I, I thought, and I don't know if I've taught this in here before. I've kind of believed in the past that perhaps it wasn't Jesus carrying the cross at all. Perhaps it was Simon. Because the carrying of the cross was the parade of the guilty man. And I've 
felt in the past that, well, perhaps that's why Simon carried it. Jesus didn't carry his cross because Jesus truly was innocent. Jesus was not guilty. And therefore, Simon is drawn in to be the carrier of the cross and to bear that parade out to Calvary. The problem with that mentality is that Jesus was guilty. He was not innocent. He bore the sin of the world on His back. He bore the guilt that you and I should and would and sometimes do feel He carried with Him. And as we read the Scriptures, again, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they they are in unison. They say it was Simon who carried the cross. But John tells us differently. John chapter 19, verse 17 tells us they took Jesus, therefore, and He went out bearing His own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Hebrew is Golgotha. John, you messed me up, man. I had such a cool little theology. And you came along and you said, no, 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 Jesus did bear this cross. But Mark says it one way. Matthew and Luke agree. John says it differently. So which one was it? Was it Jesus or was it Simon? And I think you know the answer to that. It was both. That apparently Jesus began. He went out bearing His own cross. But at some point He collapsed. At some point, we don't know when or where between the Praetorium and, the, and, the, and Golgotha. We don't know where. But it, it became too much for Him. He literally could bear it no more. Is it any wonder based on what we've just talked about? What He had gone through the previous 8 or 10 hours. Of course, the physical... Son of Man would collapse under all He had been through and He could bear it no more. But Jesus was guilty. He was not sinless as He made that trek out to Golgotha. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Now understand, personally, Jesus was pure. Personally, absolutely sinless, but corporately, he was filthy with the sin of humanity. Corporately, he took all of our junk, our stuff. He was a guilt ridden, sin saturated Jesus carrying his cross, the parade of the guilty man. And he had to do it. I point this out because I almost gave you a point that, and thankfully, God corrects and, and reveals. But I almost made this point this morning. He's going to give you four points, you only have to have three. Okay. The first one was going to be, I'm thinking Simon bore the cross. Simon signified humanity in that. He signified humanity. God pulls a man in to carry the cross, which is my place, that's what I should do. And so Simon of Cyrene signified humanity. And I thought, that's a great point. And then God said, no it's not. Simon didn't signify humanity. Jesus signified humanity. Jesus being fully Son of Man signified humanity. Jesus took my place, not Simon. So Rick, get your head straight. Get your heart straight. Simon did nothing toward your salvation. It was only Jesus. And Jesus being the Son of Man was made like His brothers, like His sisters in all things. So that we can look at Jesus. The Hebrew writer tells us, and know He knows. He understands. He's been through it. Jesus signifies humanity. But Simon did shoulder the cross. And if you want to take some notes, that's the first thing to jot down. Simon shouldered the cross. 
at some point along the way, Simon would take it on his shoulders. Now, this has been broken down a little bit by authors. In fact, it wasn't even suggested, I think, until the 1700s or 1800s. But one man came along and said, perhaps it wasn't the whole cross. You imagine, we see those pictures of, of Jesus, and he's got the, the cross beam and the cross behind him, and he's dragging that through the town. Maybe it wasn't the whole cross. The cross was made of two parts, the patibulum, which was the cross beam, and what they called the stipes, which was the actual beam that went down into the ground that stood vertically, that the person was hung on. And we know historically that there were times when the stipes just stayed in the ground. And it was the cross beam itself that criminals would carry, and they would carry that out to the stipes that was already there, and and then they would lift him up and and nail that into place, or, or lock it into place, however they did. And so someone said, well, maybe it wasn't the whole cross that was borne by Jesus, however long, and then by Simon. Maybe it was just the cross beam. The patibulum weighed 110 pounds, roughly. The stipes weighed another 200 to 250 pounds. Altogether, the cross would be over 300 pounds to bear through the streets of Jerusalem. What do you think, Rick? Well, I I think it was the whole cross. I think it was the patibulum and the stipes, one brutal instrument that was dragged through the streets. Why do you think that? Well, because history seems to indicate that was more the way it was done. Why did they bring Simon into it? They wanted to be sure that the criminal, in this case Jesus, they wanted to be sure that he would survive to the point of being nailed to the cross. Because they wanted him to endure the cross. They wanted him to feel the nails go through his hands, his feet. They wanted him to hang up there. The cross was not designed as a quick kill. Many of you Bible students know this. It was designed to be a two or three day event of suffering and anguish finally before the prisoner was given over to death. For Jesus, it was six hours. Why is that? It's because the work was done. He came and He did everything that had to be done. And He would not stay up on that cross one second longer than was absolutely required for the sin of mankind. But Simon shoulders this cross, bears it through the streets, Have you ever tried to shoulder the weight of your own sin? You ever kind of let that stuff creep up on you? I'm so thankful that Jesus takes that. And I'm so thankful that Jesus represented me, even in bearing the cross, whatever distance He did, even in being, you know, as He was lifted up on the cross. But I still shoulder the weight sometimes. I'm not saying that I'm not completely forgiven of my sin, but I shoulder the weight of guilt when I do stupid things. And I shoulder the weight of sin when I recognize the sin that I've committed. And I'm not so sure that's a bad thing. Because until I shoulder the weight of my own sin, until I really feel the burden of it, the goodness and the grace of God seems wholly unnecessary. When you're in the midst of worship, clean and pure before the Lord and all forgiven for anything behind you, and you're just there in that happy place, the grace of God is a wonderful thing. It's a joyous thing, but how much do I really need it? I mean, we're good right now, Lord, you and me. But in the midst of my life, when I have just violated my conscience and the Lord, when I have sinned in some way or another, 
It's in those moments when those pangs of guilt come, when my conscience is, is hurting within, that I recognize once again, I need His grace. I need Him to bear this because I can't. One of the things, as you talk to friends and family members about Jesus, one of the questions you bring up is, how is it working for you to work out the sin of your life? How do you you deal with guilt? You just kind of shove it down? It's still there. How do you deal with the things that you've done against other people or even against yourself? It's still there. It doesn't just go away. Or you can try and ignore it, but it's there. What do you do with that stuff? You carry it. And it gets heavier and heavier. But when the weight of your sin, brothers and sisters, when the weight of sin starts to bear down on you and you're recognizing where you've been or what you've done, may it bring us to repentance and to recognize what He has done. Turning your Bibles over to 2 Corinthians 7 just for a moment. Paul wrote a letter. A couple, perhaps three letters actually to the church at Corinth. We only have two preserved for us in the Scriptures, but... Scholars think there was a second, and that 2 Corinthians is actually the third one. It doesn't really make any difference, because what we have is what God desired. But 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is responding to some pain that he had caused. He wrote a letter to the church at Corinth, and he, he wrote it up one side and down the other. Let's put it that way. He severely chastised them for their behavior, for their lack of control. He got on their case for their abuse and misuse of spiritual gifts. He railed on them for their blatant acceptance of sin in their fellowship. And you know, as as a pastor, I I read that and I think, wow, that's got to have been hard to write. 1 Corinthians, read it through sometime. It's a rough letter. And Paul doesn't pull any punches. He gets down on the people of the church of Corinth. He lays heavy-handed on them. And then he comes back in 2 Corinthians. And and listen to what he says, beginning in verse 8. For though I caused you sorrow in my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it. (laughs) For I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a little while. What does that mean? It, It means when he wrote it, he knew he needed to. And he knew that the truth needed to be spoken at that time, so he did it. But after he sent it off, he's like, oh man, they're going to hate me. (laughs) They're going to have a problem with me. And this is not going to be easy for them to take. He's saying, I did regret it for a bit. Verse 9, I now rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Wednesday night, we pointed to that verse and said, that's the difference between Judas and Peter. Verse 10. Peter had a sorrow... He wept when he realized he had denied Jesus. But it was a sorrow that ultimately produced repentance in his life. Judas had a sorrow as well that ultimately produced his death as he hung himself from a tree. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians because he was shooting for the sorrow that would lead to repentance. Verse 11 he says, For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, 
What longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. It all changed. And now Paul's rejoicing in this. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying repentance restores innocence. And sometimes until we are made aware of our sin or feel the weight of it on our shoulders, until we're brought to to our knees in repentance, we don't recognize where we're at. Repentance restores innocence. And it restores an innocence that is not won by me. It's not won by you. It is won by the blood of Christ spilled at Calvary for us. That's why repentance is so critical as a part of our our faith life in Jesus. That we repent of those things and they go back to Him. And we are washed by the blood. And I think, what would the world be like? Consider this. If instead of people lining up to flout rebellion in God's face, as some of you may have read or seen in Seattle early Thursday morning, 1201, as the joints were lit up by the space needle because the law went into effect, that now it is no longer illegal to carry what is it, an ounce of marijuana. You can carry that stuff with you. It's, it's still illegal to smoke it in public, but the police were nowhere to be found because the police were told just let them have their fun. So there was a pot party at the space needle, 12:01 Thursday morning. At the same time, people were lining up as early as possible to get their marriage licenses. Men with men and women with women. And flouting all of this before the Lord. And I think, what if instead people were lining up there at the Space Needle or there in downtown Seattle, lining up in repentance before God the Father? What would happen? You know the first thing would be? Each and every person lining up to repent before the Lord would be freed of their guilt. They would be freed of their sin. They would have the weight of the burden of that stuff represented by the cross. That weight lifted directly off of them. Repentance is a good thing. If the weight of your sin, the cross you bear, is getting heavy, here is the good news. Simon would help Jesus shoulder the cross to Calvary, certainly, but it was Jesus who bore it at Calvary. It was Jesus who had the cross on His back. 1 Peter 2.24, Peter says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds you were healed. That is all good. Dying to sin is a good thing. It's not a loss of things that, oh, I won't be able to do that anymore, or I can't do that anymore. No, to die to sin is to die to all that stuff that brings the brutality and the pain and the sorrow into our lives. Dying to sin, living to righteousness. Righteousness is not stuffy. Where did the world ever get the idea, except from a rebellious heart, that righteousness is a stuffy, boring thing? Righteousness is like running free through the meadow with pure energy and joy. Righteousness. All is right with the world. All is right with you and God. That's righteousness. Jesus died so we could live to that. Righteous lives. And by His wounds we were healed. And who does not want to be healed of the disease that plagues us? Hebrews 12.2 tells us, Jesus, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross. But here's a stunning thought. If we get back to Simon, because we know for, for a time he shouldered the cross for Jesus. 
The stunning thought is that Jesus had to have known that the bearing of His cross would change Simon's life. You ever thought about that? Jesus knew Simon was going to be called to carry His cross. Because Jesus knew it all. I mean, Jesus had full knowledge. He knew what was going on. And in so knowing, He would recognize, even as Simon is being pulled out of the crowd, this is going to change his life. Now, I'm not saying Jesus collapsed on purpose. But I do think Jesus was completely fine with Simon picking up that cross and following Him all the way to Calvary. Because He knew this is going to change this man's life. Church tradition holds that this unobtrusive, somewhat mysterious Simon of Cyrene, actually, Cyrene is a city in northern Africa, and church tradition teaches that he was the first African Christian of note. Even before the Ethiopian eunuch, who we're told about in Acts chapter 8. Even before he comes along, that Simon of Cyrene from North Africa, uh, probably a Hellenistic Jew, who was up in Jerusalem for Passover, would be the first African Christian. Church tradition holds he was a big, burly black man. And he was the one who got to carry the cross. You know... Tradition aside, and that's an interesting thing there to consider. But when Simon carried the cross, I believe something changed in Simon. That that moment, unexpected, unplanned for by Simon, would change his life in a significant way. What are you talking about, Rick? Well, note this. Verse 21 again says, They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country... Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Why does Mark mention that he's the father of Alexander and Rufus? If not for the fact that the church in Rome knew Alexander and Rufus. They were aware of these two boys. They recognized who Simon of Cyrene was and his boys were there among them, perhaps even in the church in Rome. Remember, Mark wrote this We believe, based on the preaching of Peter in Rome, the Roman church would have been the most immediately familiar with the Gospel of Mark. And so as Mark is pinning this, as Peter's preaching this, it would be just like me standing up here saying, yeah, yeah, last night we were, you know, our our staff got together for the Christmas party and it was great. Les and Donna were there. Well, if you didn't go to the bridge, but you heard it online, the teaching, you go, Les and Donna, well, that must be someone who's real involved at at the bridge. Simon of Cyrene, you know, Alexander and Rufus. He's he's their dad. Later, Paul wrote to the Roman church in Romans chapter 16, verse 13, and said, Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord. I love those little snippets of Scripture that we skip over so quickly because it's just greetings and salutations or whatever. Let's get on to the meat of it. Don't do that. The meat of it is in every single word of every single verse. And he says, greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord. Now, this Rufus, aside from having a really cool name, Pastor Rufus, that that would have been great. This Rufus of Mark 15.21, I believe is the same Rufus of Romans 16.13. And aside from that name, he was a known brother in the Roman church. And not only a known brother, but Paul calls him a choice man in the Lord. That's awesome. 
The Greek word choice is eklektos. Eklektos, a chosen one. A called man in the Lord. It indicates someone who's special, someone who's beloved. And you have to ask the question, well, how did Rufus become such a man? And I think you can draw a bead, draw a line directly back to Simon of Cyrene. Rufus became a choice man in the Lord. Why? Because of his dad. Because he saw, perhaps, and this is totally speculation, saw his dad bear the cross. Or if he wasn't there at the time, and he may not have been, knew the story of his dad in Jerusalem on that Passover. In the crowd, watching this brutal Roman event again happening and being drawn out of the crowd. Strong man to carry this cross. Simon shouldered the cross. And if Paul's Roman reference is to the same Rufus, Simon's son, this not only would have affected Simon, it would have affected his entire family. His boys coming to faith and being a part of the Roman church because their dad bore the cross. What are you getting at, Rick? Moms and dads, do you want your kids to grow up a choice man, a choice woman in the Lord? Bear the cross. Shoulder the cross. You want them to see Jesus in you? You pick up your cross and you follow Him. You do what Simon did. You shoulder the cross of Christ. Jesus said, If any man comes after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Mark 8.34 We talked about that passage. You may recall. These were Jesus' terms and conditions for discipleship, right? Take up your cross. You want to be one of my followers? Take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. But listen. What happened with Simon goes beyond that. We're not just talking about taking up his own cross. Simon carried Jesus' cross. Simon bore the cross of Christ for a time. He didn't just struggle for his own life's sake, his own faith, his own difficulties. He struggled for the sake of Christ. He struggled in the moment where Christ couldn't bear his own cross in the flesh as a man. He steps in. And you know there are those who do this. In the world today, there are those whose lives are marked by the suffering, not their suffering, but by the suffering of Jesus. Lives marked by the suffering of Christ, like Paul who wrote in Galatians 6.17, From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. Where, Paul? He could slip his robe off his shoulder and show you the lashings. He could probably point to faces on his or places on his face or his brow where he had been hit by stones. I bear all over my body the branding of Jesus, the suffering and the pain of Jesus. Do you recall, Bible students, when, when Paul was converted, Acts chapter nine, telling the story, and um, Ananias was the man living there in Damascus at the time, and the Lord appears to Ananias and says, I want you to go to the house on Straight Street. I want you to find this man named Saul, and I want you to baptize him. And Ananias goes, okay, I've heard of the man, and I ain't going anywhere near him. (laughs) And the Lord says, no, no, no. I, I need you to go do this, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. And Paul would become a sufferer, not for Paul but a sufferer for Jesus. 
He would bear, he would shoulder the cross of Christ, as it were. Philippians 3.8, Paul would write later, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Well, what proof do you have of that, Paul? Well, as he wrote those words, he was in prison, sentenced to die. Paul says, may I be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and, listen, and the fellowship of His sufferings. Being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul wasn't talking about the sufferings of Christians trying to deal day to day with the challenges of being a believer in Christ. He was talking about the sufferings of Christ Himself. I want to know His sufferings, Paul prayed. Simon's shouldering the cross. Man, it's a picture for me. This whole idea of number two in your notes, Simon shared in Christ's suffering. On that day, he was the only one who did it. He actually shared in the physical suffering of Christ as he made his way through the bloody streets of Jerusalem. Do you see the difference? Simon knew the singular honor of following Jesus. Bearing the cross, sharing in the sufferings. Now, the typical Christian today, here I am, struggles as he deals with and talks about his own sin struggles. And I take up my cross and follow him. My cross. Well, last week someone picked on me. You know? I'm having trouble trusting you in this area of my life, Lord. I'm going to bear my cross. I'm bearing it, Lord. I'm hanging in there. I have these problems, these issues, but I'm getting there. How do I deal with the temptations and and sins in life? How do I trust God when it doesn't make sense to do so? How do I make right moral choices in such a gray world? What does God want out of my life? These are all important questions. But my friends, taking up your cross is nothing compared to taking up His. The difference is what Paul says when he says in 2 Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Who's he talking about? Those who will bear the cross of Christ. The rest will bear our cross. The difficulties, the struggles of being a Christian in this life, I'll I'll bear that cross. But to bear the cross of Christ, to bear His sufferings, to suffer and hurt and perhaps even die because of His name on your life, that's a totally different thing. It's one thing to say, I'll suffer with Him and even for Him. It's another thing to do it. Peter learned that the hard way, didn't he? Peter said, I'll suffer with you. I'll die with you, Lord. I'm not going to let this thing happen. And in the garden, Jesus had to keep coming back to Peter and James and John, saying, Mark 14.38, Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
Peter, I know you want to take up your cross and follow me. But your flesh is so weak. And you're going to be called upon to take up my cross. And Peter was called upon to take up Jesus' cross that night. He had three opportunities to do it. Three opportunities to be nailed up alongside Jesus that night. And three times he denied that he even knew Him. It's a profound moment. Note this. We talked about this Wednesday night in Mark 14. Jesus charged His disciples to keep watch while He prayed three times. Stay here and pray. And He goes away and pray. He comes back. Stay here and pray. And He goes away and pray. He comes back a third time. Stay here and pray. And then He goes away and prays. And as He comes back, all three times, they're sound asleep. They're snoozing away. They're sawing logs. Three times. And how many times would Peter deny Jesus? Three times. I don't think that's by coincidence, gang. And after that third denial, Luke 22.61, the Lord, we're told, turned and looked at Peter. Eye to eye. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before, a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Peter, where did you go? Where is the Peter from the Last Supper who said, I'll die with you if I have to? Where is the Peter who stood strong, who stuck his foot in his mouth saying, I'm one of Jesus' men for three years? Where did you go, Peter? That big, burly Galilean fisherman. Where did you go? And you Bible students know, that night when Jesus found Peter sawing logs instead of standing guard, Do you remember what He called him? Simon. Mark 14.37, Jesus doesn't call him Peter. He calls him Simon. He calls him by his old name. By the previous name. The old man. What a coincidence that the man who bore Jesus' cross was named Simon. How interesting is that? And you say that was on purpose, Rick? Here's what I'm saying. God always gets the job done. And if one Simon won't do it, He'll find another Simon to do it. And if one Rick won't bear his cross, He's going to find another Rick to do it. If one less is not going to stand up and is unable to stand up, He's going to find another less. You know, more or less. (laughs) He's going to get the job done. And there are those who will deny themselves, who will take up their own crosses and follow Jesus and their life, their struggle of the Christian faith. And you know, they will be saved by grace and they will be sanctified in the struggle and they will be home with Jesus. But there's another type of person in this world who will shoulder his sufferings. Who when he says, are you willing to die with me? Are you willing to bear my cross? People who will say, I'll be that, Simon. I'll do that, Lord. And I believe far greater is the honor of being in fellowship with His pains the way Paul was. And I'm telling you right now, I have not done that. In my 48 years, I have not been called upon to that level. Rick, you're talking a lot about this stuff lately. The martyrdom thing from a couple weeks ago. and What are you preparing us for? I don't know. I'm not preparing. It's what, What's the Lord preparing us for? Is He preparing you to be called upon to share in His sufferings over and above and beyond your own? He may very well be. 
The question I'm asking is, will you be that Simon? Will you be the Simon who will carry the cross of Christ? Peter said in 1 Peter 4.1, and by the way, Peter would be that Simon. It took a little longer. But Peter ultimately would be that Simon himself crucified in his death. Of course, many of you know, probably upside down because he didn't feel like he should have the honor of being crucified the way Jesus was. But Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4.1, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. And here's the last thing I want you to think about this morning. Sometimes the will of God goes head to head with your will. I hate when that happens. Gang, <laughs> okay, we got to understand this. Sometimes suffering with and for Christ is not something we choose. It is not something we want. Now, I'm sure none of you have ever done this, but I confess, it's occasionally entering my brain, Lord, I didn't ask for this. Lord, I didn't want this. I didn't sign up for this. A problem arises. A challenge comes. A critic attacks. Or just life takes an unexpected and difficult turn. And you say, man, I didn't sign up for this. Neither did Simon. Simon came to celebrate, not to drag a cross embarrassingly, shamefully through the streets of Jerusalem. Simon came for fellowship, not the fellowship of his sufferings. Simon came simply for Simon and to remember what the Lord had done in Passover. He had no idea he was about to be a part of the greatest Passover that had ever taken place. Number three, Simon served under compulsion. He shouldered the cross of Christ. He shared in his sufferings. And finally, he served under compulsion. Basically, the Romans gave him an offer he couldn't refuse. Bible tells us he was pressed into service. Pressed into service. The word pressed into service. Angareo is the word. It's a very interesting word. It's very picturesque as many Greek words are. And it means forced to carry. Angareo, though it's a Greek word, it's borrowed from a Persian word, the angaroi. In Persia, the Angaroi were couriers of the king, couriers of the ruling class. Angaroi were stationed in places throughout Persia to carry messages. And so the king could send out a message from one courier in the palace straight out to the next one, out to the next, and out to the next, and it would be passed around all throughout the land, the Angaroi. And Simon became an angoreo, forced to carry. The angoroi could be called on at any time. They had to be ready 24-7. If a message came, you went, and it didn't matter what you were doing. They could also use any means necessary in their service. They could conscript, if you would, uh, horses, belongings, people. An angoroi could tap another person on the shoulder and say, you go, you go share this over there. And they had to obey. They had to do it. And the Romans took this word and they began to use it to mean that they could press any citizen into any kind of service. We need your house. Get out. And a guard could be set up. We need your horses. Get off. And you'd never see them again. On Goreo. 
forced to do what they tell you to do, Simon had no choice. They pressed him into service. Grabbed hold of him and pulled him into the fray, and he did not ask to be there. He didn't want to be there. And yet he ends up forced into service as the courier of the altar of the Passover lamb, the bearer of the cross of Christ. And there are many others. Some of you, people who didn't ask to serve, they didn't go looking for pain, they weren't in the market for suffering, they weren't excited about heartache, they were people who served God under compulsion. Now this is interesting to me also because Peter says in 1 Peter 5, talking about shepherds in the church, let them serve not under compulsion. Then talking about giving, 2 Corinthians 9, he says, no one should give under compulsion, but freely from the heart, just give because you've determined to do that. And yet in this case we see Simon of Cyrene who served under compulsion and I believe is a picture of the calling that we have in Christ Jesus. What do you mean? We are the Angaroi. We are the couriers, the ambassadors of Christ. And once you sign up for that service game, once you give your life to Jesus, part of what you give up in giving up your sin is you give up your will. Well, how can Jesus ask for that? Because He gave up His will. He never did anything Himself He never asked you to do anything that He Himself didn't do. Not as I will, Father, but whatever You will, Your will be done. And so we, like Christ, now we follow Him. And we are the Angeroid, the couriers, who give it up. Jeremiah understood that. I love this verse. Jeremiah 20, verse 9. He says, If I say I will not remember Him, or speak any more in His name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire. I get bad heartburn, he says. Like a fire shut up in my bones and I'm weary of holding it in and I cannot endure it. What are you saying, Jeremiah? I have no choice. I am under compulsion to prophesy. I have to do it because when I try not to, it doesn't work. I have to. Paul said that. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, If I preach the Gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. Church at Corinth, and by the way, that's during Paul's first letter to Corinth. I'm not writing this letter because I want to. I'm writing this letter because I have to. I'm under compulsion. I can't get away from it. He says, Woe is me, however, if I don't preach the Gospel. If I did this voluntarily, I I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Do you understand what Paul is saying? He's saying, I have a stewardship from God that goes against my will sometimes. I don't want to write that letter. I don't want to deal with this pain. I don't want to go out and be stoned. I'm not talking about the Space Needle. be shipwrecked? I don't want to be thrown in prison. Who signs up for that? That's not what I want. And yet Paul prayed, but I want to know Christ. And I want to share in His suffering. And I want to conform to His death. Well then, Paul, you just gave up your will, buddy. 
Are you saying that we should all be under compulsion? Yes, I am. I'm saying the cross of Jesus Christ is compulsory. That even as Jesus Himself served under compulsion, not my will, but your will. He didn't want to go to Calvary, but He had to go to Calvary. Why? Because the Father forced Him? Coerced Him? No. Because the Father's love was in Him. And His own love forced Him to the cross. He could not turn back. Jesus served under compulsion in the same way Simon serves under compulsion. And if we know the love of God for us, if we truly recognize the passion of Christ for us, we will serve, yes, under compulsion. And there's even a verse for that. 2 Corinthians 5.14 For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. Simon shouldered the cross. He had to. He shared in the sufferings of Christ. No choice. And Simon served under compulsion. And I believe it saved his life. How about yours? Are you one who will say, Lord, I'll take up my cross and follow You? Or are you willing to be among those who say, Jesus, I'll take up your cross if you call me to.